Um, well, this morning, let's get our Bibles and let's turn to the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to begin by reading uh, Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 41. So Mark 15, verses 33 through 41. Let us stand together as we read this this morning. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and the younger uh, and Joseph, uh, younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Lord, we need your help this morning because we are in a text, Lord, that is a, a focal point of this gospel. Lord, it is essential for us to see this text, Lord, in a way that you want us to see it, Lord, with all the essentials uh, glaring at us and screaming at us for attention, would you allow me as your messenger to, to be faithful, Lord, to be your mouthpiece for this text, for your people? And Lord, what we, what we know not, Lord, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? What we are not, Lord, would you make us? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, contrary to uh, some people's opinion, Mark's gospel isn't just telling the story of Jesus, as if it's just a, 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 a record of memoirs or, or some accounting of, of things that happened a long time ago in the life of the disciples. Mark is giving us a selected record of what Jesus did with the purpose of presenting Jesus as the Son of God, whose mission it was to die on the cross and thereby be the ransom for many. That through his death on the cross, we can be reconciled to God. Now, in our, uh, our American Christian culture, um, sometimes what we find is that, uh, from the pulpits in particular, the, the, this great pleading to somehow convince people that here is, here is all the evidence and you just have to believe. As if we have to come up with ways to conjure up and to convince people. And I think one of the things that we need to realize is that may not be the best 
approach. And listen to uh, the words of Dick Lucas. Dick Lucas is one of, my, one of my mentors. Not that he's ever meant me, but he's a mentor from a distance because I've listened to him. Um, I, I benefit from his ministry greatly. In fact, he is the, the founder of the principles that we use for Simeon Trust. And here's what he, he has said. If you listen to much evangel, uh, evangelicalism that, goes, uh, that is going on in the Western world today, you will be forgiven for thinking that the message that the Bible presents through the preacher is, is there any way that I can persuade you to accept God or to accept Christ? But again, this is the question that we've come up to seek to reach our culture. But he says, that is not the Bible's question. The Bible question is, is there any way that God can be persuaded to accept you? See, the problem is, first of all, we don't want to tell people their real condition. As we have sung today, we've sung about being in the bondage of sin. We've sung about being enslaved. People think they are free, but they're not. It's a lie. And what they need to do and what they need to understand is their real condition. And they need to understand that they are estranged from God. They are enemies of God. They are without hope. And it's not about us going along and saying, you know, let me convince you that, that Jesus Christ is what you need because they don't understand that they have a need. <laughs> you have to establish the need. And the need is that they are in darkness. And the great message of Christmas is what? He has come and he is the light. The light has come into the darkness. So the emphasis is not so much on Man, although man is part of the story, the emphasis of the gospel is that this is what God has done for us so that we can be accepted by him. See, that's a completely different question, isn't it? It's a completely different approach to understanding what is going on as it relates to the gospel. And the Bible teaches us that in Christ, who became to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, we are accepted. So Mark is telling sinful man what God has done to bring about reconciliation and renewal. And now, as Jesus hangs on the cross, the plan of God is being realized, and God wants us to take notice. And so I've, I've kind of summarized my proposition. Um, it's, it's a longer one, but I think you'll understand why I've put it this way. As the passion story moves to a climax, and understand, we are building on a story that has been ongoing, and even the passion story, and even the cross story has been ongoing. So as the passion story moves to a climax, Mark wants us to listen and to hear the love and the beauty of the gospel so that we too will see Christ for who he really is, the very Son of God. And as you think through some of the characters in this passion story, they're observing things, they are hearing things, and they are declaring things. And we need to take notice 
of what it is that is being said here. Now, we want to begin by looking at Jesus as the sacrifice on the cross. And when the sixth hour had come, the passage begins. Now, Mark laid out his record of the passion of Jesus Christ using careful indicators of time. He began to, to kind of lay that down for us at the end of chapter 13. He talks about events that happen in the evening, at midnight, at the cock crowing, and in the morning. But during the, the crucifixion story, he turns and talks about the events happening at the third hour, the sixth hour, and the ninth hour. Now, the third hour is nine in the morning. The sixth hour is noon. The ninth hour is three o'clock in the afternoon. So just kind of get this time frame in your mind as we look at some of the anchors that are listed in here because it begins here and when the sixth hour had come. We know that the end of the day takes place because at the, uh, in, in chapter 15, I think it's verse 41 or 42, it says, when evening had come, that's when the Sabbath begins. So the day is over. So these events are chronologically laid out, or at least anchored to these, these time segments. And what we find at the sixth hour are some things that are very interesting for us and significant for us. But first of all, I want you to notice verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So get this, in the middle of the day... When the sun is at its zenith, darkness miraculously settles on Jerusalem and the, uh, the surrounding territories, and, and it's there for three hours. This was not an eclipse. This was a supernatural act of God to punctuate the event of Jesus' death. In fact, the Greek tense indicates that darkness came suddenly. It wasn't a gradual thing. It's like, whoa, where did that come from? It was supposed to be something that would grab people's attention. There's something happening. There's something going on. Now, we have a, a little sense of that. We in the Bay Area, by God's providence, he's given us an illustration to connect a little bit with this. Because a few weeks ago, we were walking around in the middle of the day saying what? Where is the sun? Because there was so much smoke in the air, you could, you could see kind of a, the outsides of the sun, but you couldn't see the sun. You could look at it, and the smoke kind of kept it at bay. It wasn't dark, but it was certainly a form of darkness. And if you remember, it was really eerie, wasn't it? I mentioned it was even somewhat apocalyptic. It's like, this is really, really strange. So imagine if it just turns dark all of a sudden. Now you're saying, well, that happened at daylight savings time. It's like, whoa, what happened here, right? It's like, I want to go to sleep and it's five o'clock. Yeah, but imagine if that happened in the middle of the day. There's something significant going on here. And not only was there darkness, but there was also silence. Now the text doesn't say that, but the text also 
communicates by a lack of information here, both here and the other Gospels, that anything was actually going on between the sixth hour and the ninth hour. There's no record of any activity. So this darkness at midday, marking the time of Jesus' sacrifice, should also remind us of the shining light of God's glory and musical voices of the angels who suddenly appear to the shepherds when? In the middle of the night, when it's dark. So here is, here is God's plan. We began our service today with Emmanuel, boom. And what happened there? Light in the midst of darkness. Now as we come to Jesus' death, there is darkness in the midst of light. It's a very poetic picture, isn't it, that God is expressing here just through images to let us know that something very significant is about to happen. Now, we obviously know that because we're in the, the passage that's dealing with Jesus' crucifixion. But this passage isn't just about Jesus' crucifixion, is it? We covered that last week. This passage is about his death on the cross. Now, why is there darkness? Darkness, first of all, is a sign of mourning. A sign of mourning. Um, I, I would like for us just to draw our attention to Amos chapter 8 and verses 9 and 10 because this is the mourning that's prophesied by Amos. It says, and on, the f on, on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Oh, wait a second, we just read that. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every uh, waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. This is a day. If those people there were Jews and had a grasp of God's word, and they did, because they were raised up in uh, the, the synagogue, and they learned the word of God in far better ways than we typically do, they would probably recognize this prophetic word. So the events on the cross are now covered with the sackcloth of mourning as darkness covers the land. Secondly, darkness also signified the judgment of God. And this comes from Exodus chapter 10 and verse 21. If you remember, here are the people of God, the people of Israel who are living in Egypt. And this is the time when God is plaguing the land. And there's a final plague before the Passover. And it was a plague of darkness. The last plague, of course, would be the, the angel of death. But, but that would kill every firstborn son. But, of course, what did the Jews do? They went and put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, right? That's the beginning of this Passover celebration. And isn't it interesting? This is all taking place right now at the Passover celebration. And before the actual sacrifice and the Passover, there is darkness. That's what's happening in the book of Exodus with the people of God. And now 
before Jesus dies, there is darkness. So before the death of the ultimate Passover lamb, we have once again God's this darkness, and it's God's judgment that is being signified by this darkness. So this darkness takes us to what was happening during those three hours. We've seen last week the agony of Jesus as he suffered in his body. But now we see the agony of Jesus as he suffers in his soul. This is the point of the gospel story where the shoulders of Jesus bear the full weight of sin until he becomes sin. These theological details are not explained in the gospels, but they are expressed in some of the passages in the Old Testament and certainly in um, some of the epistles in the New Testament. Let's look at a couple of them, or a few of them. First of all, obviously very familiar uh, we, we knew we would go to Isaiah 53, but listen to what it says. He was despised and rejected by men. Just you know, look at the words that are highlighted there as we go through. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet... We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Those are powerful descriptive words, aren't they? See, these are all things that are happening while Jesus is hanging on the cross here in this darkness. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And we, we, we try the best we can to comprehend what that looks like. <laughs> but we fall so far short, don't we? And then we have 1 Peter chapter 2 and 24. He himself... Talking about Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Now that healing is a spiritual healing. But he bore our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 for our sakes, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sakes, he made him to be sin. To be sin. Again, try and comprehend what that means in its full expression, and we fall short again. How can we describe what is happening here? What we can imagine is that wave after wave of the world's sin was poured over the, 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 the soul of, of the sinless Christ. He faced the cup of man's sinfulness. So now during these dark hours, he bears the weight of that vile sinfulness in the garden. If you remember, Jesus looked deeply into that cup 
and that cup that he would have to endure, anticipating what it was going to be like, now he is actually experiencing that. So just think now of, of what all that sin looks like. And here's just a, here's just a, a, a small a smattering of, of those things, man's anger and hatred and, and murder, rape and sexual abuse of every kind, pornography, jealousy, envy, covetousness, selfishness, deception, backbiting, slander and theft and bitter hatred and rebellion against God. Those are just a few expressions of what that sin looks like. But now he's bearing this sin in its totality. There is not a sin that he has not borne for the many. He has shouldered our sin. And as a result of bearing all that vile sinfulness, Jesus becomes a curse. And that's what Galatians 3.13 tells us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now, aren't you just amazed, just even in reading some of those passages there, just how clear and interconnected God's word is? I mean, that man would, would sit back one day and just say, well, how can we kind of, there's stuff in the Old Testament, how can we create and write a New Testament that would fit the Old Testament? It's like, you've got to be crazy to think this is just a bunch of man's ideas that have been put down on paper. This is God breathing out his word, and it connects and explains fully. So we see this darkness. Secondly, we see despair. Despair. Because Jesus became sin for us, he had to undergo the horrible trauma of separation from God. He is now truly alone. Now, I'm going to share just a little story about my life as a child, but I think you have the same story. We were on a picnic together. We were in Germany at that point in time. I was probably about six years old, and it was out in the country and you know, at a park, and there was lots of woods around, and we had our meal. And as a kid, I just went off to play, and I said, oh, I'm going to go venture off into the woods. And I kept on you know, being adventurous and going here and going in and going there. And before long, I was in my own little world playing. can't remember exactly what I was doing. But before long, um, I didn't know where I was. I was having fun until then. It was great. And then it was like, all right, where am I? And how do I get back? And I realized I am separated from my parents. And I began to cry. And I don't mean, ooh, cry. I mean like, ah, you know, mom, dad. And you know what it's like? You've been at Walmart, right? When the kid gets stuck somewhere in the other aisle and they're, they're just having, a, they're having some kind of a fit because they've lost mom. Now, that's just a small picture of saying there's something about separation from a child to a parent that is traumatic, right? Now, that doesn't even compare to what we have here, but it gives us a sense in which the things that Jesus is experiencing. He's been abandoned by his disciples. He's been rejected by the religious leaders. He's been mocked by the crowds and handed over by Pilate and scourged by the soldiers. And if that isn't enough, now he is separated from his father, which is actually far worse than any of the other things we looked at. Now his separation wasn't just a theological idea. His separation wasn't just a feeling of, of being alone. His separation was, in fact, utterly and truly 
alone. He was abandoned. He was left by the Father and the Spirit. You say, well, wait a second. How does that work? It isn't that the unity of the Trinity was broken or diminished in any way, shape, or form. But because of sin, the separation of the Son from the Father and the Spirit was a necessity. God's holy nature demanded it. Now as the dark silence continues, Jesus finds himself convulsing in his own soul. And then at the ninth hour, the silence is broken with a loud cry. Let's read it, verse 34. And the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemastabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is a genuine heart cry from Jesus hanging on the cross. This is not just some words in a story. He is forsaken. He is alone. And he knows he must be forsaken. And he knows he must be alone. But we go back to the, the interaction with the Father in the garden. And what did Jesus say? If you can take this cup from me, but not my will. Yours be done. He's speaking in his humanity about the suffering he would go through. And that would include this abandonment, this, this being forsaken. Now, friends, it wasn't unusual for someone who was hanging on a cross to rage against his onlookers or to cry out pleading for the, the suffering to end or to curse those who have condemned him to death. But what Jesus cries out, or when he cries out, he expresses unimaginable pain, excruciating suffering, and real abandonment. Jesus is not some, some spirit hanging on the tree that is not actually affected by this. As if his hands weren't pierced and his body really wasn't affected. This is him, the God-man, hanging on the tree, suffering the worst kind of suffering that you could suffer. And by that, I'm not talking about the crucifixion. I'm talking about bearing the wrath of the Father. John Calvin says, Jesus expressed this horror of great darkness, this God-forsakenness by quoting the only verse of Scripture which actually described it and which he had perfectly fulfilled. Of course, that's from Psalm 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And by Jesus repeating the words, my God, my God, he was affirming his trust in his Father. Now, it seemed that Jesus' cry here of abandonment and despair is when the darkness begins to dissipate. The cup had been emptied, and Mark tells us what happens next. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. Now, there's some debate as to exactly what's going on here. Are these people mocking him? Are they there to help him? Because we read a little bit later in verse 36, And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. It's possible that they mistook him saying or crying out for Elijah when he was saying Eloi, Eloi, because it sounds similar. But they come and they, grif, they bring this, this, this drink with sponge with some sour wine. This was not a drug. This was actually to, to quench the thirst, but also to prolong the suffering. 
And it's clear by the end, at least the way I'm understanding it here, when it says, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down, is a statement that's more a mocking statement. Now, there's some debate there. But here he is, hanging on the tree. And he is now crying out to his father. He is in despair. And that despair ends then with his death. And this is where we need to consider a little bit about what the other Gospels tell us. John records that Jesus says, it is finished. And this was followed by the loud cry that Luke records, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then we read in Mark's Gospel, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. So the death of Jesus on the cross was not, as I mentioned, just crucifixion. And what's, what's unusual here about the death of Jesus on the cross is that most people who died uh, being crucified went through periods of unconsciousness. And they died in, in this kind of unconscious state. Jesus doesn't die like that. He's very... He's very mindful about what is taking place. He's mindful of the suffering he's experiencing. He's talking to the Father, and then he breathes out his last. In other words, his mind was clear to the end. He wasn't drugged up. He went fully to face the cup of this wrath. Jesus gave his life. It wasn't taken from him. When Jesus cried, it is finished, he was announcing to the Father and to us that his mission on the earth was over. What he came to do as a baby in a manger had been accomplished and fulfilled on the cross. And the tense of the Greek language indicates that what Jesus was saying is, it has been and it forever will be finished. It's done. It's accomplished. It's over. The debt has been paid. And John the Baptist earlier in the story of the gospel came announcing that Jesus was the Lamb of God who, what? Takes away the sin of the world. And earlier Jesus tells his disciples that the Son of Man must come, came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the death of Christ paid for the sin of all those who believe. Now, man's sin is an offense against a holy God. Man's sin separates him from God. Man's sin plunges man's plight into an eternity in hell. Friends, that's the reality of man's condition. And man in that condition doesn't just kind of like reason and say, I see that those things are true. I think maybe, yeah, it sounds good. No, he has to see his own need. He has to see his own condition. He has to see that what, what God has done through Christ on the cross is to pave a way for reconciliation to take place. And without God's work, you and I are doomed. And so the same God who has been offended by man's sin, the same God who because, of his holy, his, because he's holy cannot abide sin, has by his love and grace made reconciliation possible. The death of Jesus, the Son of God, has paid for man's sin. That's called the atonement. 
And Jesus' death satisfies all that is necessary for reconciliation to take place. So you have Jesus dying on the cross. You have the Father in heaven. And as Jesus bears man's sin, as he dies, there is the satisfaction now that is going up to the Father. He is is satisfied because what needed to take place has been fully accomplished. Now, friends, this is really important to understand because you and I don't need to do anything more to somehow appease God so we can earn our salvation. It was all done for you by Jesus on the cross. There's too many, I would say, churches under the umbrella of Christianity that still promote you need to do these things. But that's not the truth of the gospel. That is not what we find being taught in the pages of his word. Certainly we do works, but those works are the fruit of life in Christ. They are not the means to eternal life in Christ. It is Christ and Christ alone that paves the way so that we then can be reconciled to the Father. It's done. It's finished. It's over. And so Jesus' death satisfies all that is necessary for reconciliation to take place. Now, in the Old Testament, year after year, sacrifices have been offered to God, but they were always temporary atonements for sin. They just they covered for a season, for a small season, then they have to do it again and cover for a small season. But now, when Jesus Christ comes, we're told that he is the sacrifice, what? Once for all. He now satisfies all that is necessary. So we who placed our trust in him are fully forgiven, reconciled, embraced as his children. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, what a savior. This is what he's done for you and for me. But now, having gone this far and seen the sacrifice on the cross, we want to now look at the effects of that sacrifice, the solution because of the cross. Jesus died a sacrifice on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He takes our place when we deserve to be there. He became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But here we have in the rest of this text, three results that take place because of the cross. Now, these are not all the results, but these are three significant results. And we want to begin then at verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And so what does that mean? Well, let's just borrow a little bit from Matthew's gospel, because he says in chapter 27, verse 51, and following these words. The earth shook, and the rocks split. The tombs broke open, and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of tombs, and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. It's like... Am I actually reading this? Is this actually in the Bible? It's like, yes, this is actually in the Bible. This isn't Netflix, guys. This is, this is biblical truth. 
There's something happening here at this moment, and they all kind of work together. Why is this so significant? When we go back to verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year, but now, because of Christ and the, the curtain being torn in two, the way is wide open for all who are in Christ. With the curtain being torn in two, all of us can come boldly into the presence of God. And so the bottom line is this, friends. Because of Christ's death on the cross, we have been liberated. We have been set free. We have access. And so the first word I want to use here is freedom. True freedom is found only in Christ. If you are not in Christ, you are not free. You are in bondage to sin. And you will continue to be in bondage. You won't recognize it as bondage, but that is clearly what you are. This is your condition. But Hebrews 10, 19 and following tell us this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We have freedom to come boldly to the throne of grace. Why? Because of Christ. So Jesus, being our high priest, gives access to the Father through his blood. At the moment of Jesus' death, Tombs break open and outstepped holy believers. Just ponder that. Both the torn curtain and the empty tomb are preaching that the death of Jesus Christ has brought freedom from the bonds of death to all who believe. Mark is preaching the gospel in this text. He's saying it's not just about Jesus dying on the cross. He's saying something happened as a result of what's taking place here. It's freedom. Jesus has come and he has set us free. The payment is made. What Jesus has done has been accomplished. You who believe are set free in Christ. There's freedom. Not only that, though, there's been a question that's been building through Mark's gospel. And the question is this, who is Jesus? Mark begins with his identity in the first sentence of his gospel. Turn back to Mark 1. I want you to see it. This is, this is kind of like the theme, the melodic line of Mark's gospel, and Mark has been reinforcing this all the way through his gospel. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what? The Son of God. Throughout the gospel, Mark has been putting Jesus on display. And there's different titles that are given to him, but they're all pointing to the fact that he is this Messiah, the Son of God. 
Chapter 1, verse 24, the unclean spirit declares, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That's no small statement, is it? Mark chapter 2, verse 10, where Jesus is revealing himself to the paralytic by healing him and saying, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Of course, that expression, Son of Man, comes from the book of Daniel and clearly is messianic. Mark chapter 2, verse 28, when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees who were troubled about the disciples picking grain on the Sabbath, Jesus says this, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Mark 5, 7, the demon declares to Jesus, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? And then as Jesus interacts with his disciples, you remember three times Jesus speaks and basically says this, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He again declared to them, the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And now... As we get to chapter 15, it's like we've gone through this this whole kind of weaving where he's presenting Jesus Christ and showing Jesus Christ for who he is and what he has come to do. We find him doing what he came to do, but also being declared who he really is by someone you would not expect. Another man speaks and gives testimony. Look at verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, there's a number of things going on here. Remember, Mark is writing this gospel to those in Rome. And so any connection with Rome would be understood by those people or would be credible to those people. Secondly, the centurion here has been at his post all day. History shows that the centurion are given responsibility not only to be present at the crucifixion, but to be there throughout the crucifixion. So he's observing all of this. So he's charged with oversight of this. So what has he experienced? What has he seen during the course of the day? He's seen the struggle of Jesus as he journeyed to the cross. He's seen the the suffering of Jesus as the nails were driven into his hands and feet and the cross was settled into the hole in the ground. He's seen those who came by to mock and to scorn Jesus. He heard Jesus tell John to take care of his mother. He heard the sweet words of Jesus say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He was there when darkness and silence descended from the sixth hour to the ninth. He had been present since the beginning of the crucifixion and all the way until Jesus cried out and breathed his last. And the Roman centurion declares what he now knows to be true, that Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God. Now, friends, Mark is building his case. And friends, this is the punchline to his case. 
And it comes out of a very unusual source, doesn't it? Someone who's observing this. Now, we'd be overreaching to say that this was a a declaration of this man's faith. God had put the truth of of who he is into this this man's tongue, and yet I, I think with what he's observed, it's likely that along with so many other people that he would be eventually one who would be a follower of Christ, having seen all that, because so many people would follow Christ in just a few days. But friends, this begs the question for the readers of this gospel and for us, have we been observing carefully what Mark has been recording about Jesus? Are we considering all the ways Mark is presenting Jesus? Let me just walk through just a list of of a, a caricature of Jesus from Mark's gospel. It's not exhaustive, but it's helpful here. He is a faithful preacher preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. He is a loving miracle worker spending hours and days with people and healing them of their, their physical ailments. Isn't that I mean, amazing how much time Jesus just went out and, and just helped people with their physical struggles? He's a wise teacher who handles the word of God with care. He's a skillful storyteller who makes his points with clarity. He's an outstanding debater who leaves all who challenge him amazed and in wonder at his words. He's a patient master who is instilling himself into the lives of a ragtag group of disciples. He's the fulfillment of scripture. He's a tough man who stands on principle no matter what. He's innocent. He is love personified. He is committed to the will of the Father to the end. I mean, just wonderful picture here of who Jesus is and how he's been revealed to us. So this is the third point, and that is revelation. Mark's been revealing who he is. Throughout his gospel, but now with the punchline of the statement, surely this man is the Son of God. And he's writing this gospel to people because he wants them to see who Jesus really is. Now, the answer to the question, who is Jesus, is clearly stated. He's the Son of God. The answer to the question, what has he come to do, has been evidently seen. He has set us free by the blood of the cross. Now the question for us is, what will your response be? Again, it's not just to to show, but it's to show so that you will respond. Who are the, the many that Jesus came to save? Well, they're the Jews, the disciples, the the crowd, even religious leadership, those who believed during his ministry that Jesus is truly the Son of God. And even after he, he, he dies and rises from the tomb, it'll be made up of Jews. But we're also kind of getting this indication that there'll be Gentiles too. Remember, this was a Roman centurion, right? I mean, so there's this... This wonderful witness here to say, this is not just a a Jewish thing. This is a Gentile thing too. And as we continue on here, something that Mark does is he opens the door and helps us see that this also involves women. 
There were also women looking from, on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, friends, this is a picture often we forget as we're reading through the Gospels and we see Jesus with his disciples. We just always, in our minds, think, oh, this is Jesus with the Twelve, Jesus with the Twelve. Well, he was with the Twelve, but with the Twelve were also a group of women who were coming along, supporting, helping in a variety of different ways. This is what we're told here, right? When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were many also other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So it wasn't just Jesus and the disciples. It was Jesus and the disciples and lots of women. And what Mark is letting us know here is that that, that the gospel call is not just for Jews. It's not just for Gentiles. It's for Men, women, and children, it's ultimately for all. Listen to what John 12, 32 says. And I, this is Jesus speaking, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Mark's making a point here that, that his gospel and this particular section, and one of, the, one of the, uh, the effects of the cross is inclusion. It is the cross that draws us. The women were watching from a distance. The centurion watching from the beginning to the end of that day. The disciples, although scattered at his arrest, know what he's being, what's being done to their master. And with the resurrection, the cross would become a great magnet drawing men and women and children from every culture, social status, gender, and ethnicity. Because all of us will say this, guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he, full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a savior. It doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile, man or woman, child or adult, or what country you're from. We are all either in bondage to sin or free in Christ. Now let me bring this to a close. As I said at the beginning here, my job isn't to persuade you to accept Christ. Yes, it is to declare the evidence. Clearly, that is true. But my job is to reveal to you the good news that God has made a way for you to be accepted. In other words, you can't create your own way. (laughs) It is God's way. And the reason you can be reconciled to God is because God says you can. He says, come on in. But you're coming in my way. You're coming in through my sacrifice of my son, which brings about my gospel. I am allowing you to come in. And really, friends, believing is the only wise, reasonable, and sensible response to that. Just three words that help summarize, I think, just some of the final thoughts here, and even preparing us for the Lord's table. 
First of all, the word accomplished. God's plan has been accomplished. First of all, we have been redeemed. That's the idea behind the words in Mark 10, 45, where it says that Jesus came to be a ransom for many. A ransom is a price paid to settle a debt. So a payment had to be made to buy us out of our slavery in uh, uh, insulin into freedom. And his sacrifice paid the price. We sing the song, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. There is somewhat of a mixing of metaphors there, right? But he paid it all. All. We've been redeemed. But not only that, we've been reconciled. As ungodly sinners, we were enemies of God. But through Christ's death, we have been reconciled. Listen to Romans 5, 6 through 11 as I, as I walk through it and just pick up the, the, the argument that Paul is making here as he writes to the Roman church. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. Just pause there. Jesus didn't die for righteous people. He died for people who were truly sinners, right? But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, our condition, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood or declared righteous by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Why? Because the wrath has been poured on his son. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now receive reconciliation. We are reconciled. All right, restored. In right standing with God. That's just in summary what was accomplished. Secondly, because of that, we are now a people who are accepted. Because Jesus accomplished this full satisfaction in the atonement on the cross, we're accepted. We enjoy life in his family. We celebrate life with his church. We no longer need to to work, to receive salvation. It has been paid for. We belong to Christ and the spirit of God resides in us. And we are welcomed in with arms wide open, with love fully flowing. We're accepted. And friends, that should remind us that as we gather as God's church, there is a tone that we should have and it's a tone of, of acceptance. Now, that acceptance means we recognize that people are sinners and that we welcome them in spite of the fact that they're sinners, but we are going to declare the truth of what their condition is and we're going to declare the truth of what God has done to bring about the reconciliation. And sadly, too many times we 
we fall short because we, we want to be liked. And so we diminish the emphasis on this is your condition. And we just say, well, God is love. Don't you want to be loved? And he'll accept you. And the acceptance there is a different kind of acceptance than the acceptance that comes through the gospel. So we have this accomplishment. We have this acceptance. And finally, we have access. And I just pause. I, just, I, just, I paused on that for a while as I was thinking through this, this text and this sermon. What a great privilege to come to Christ directly. Just let that reality set in your, in your soul. And maybe, maybe it's hard for us to comprehend if, if you haven't been a part of a, a religious system that kept you at a distance. With the death of Christ and the veil of the temple torn in two, we have access to the Father. So when we sin, we don't come to God through a human mediator. Certainly we have Christ, but any human mediator is no longer necessary. We don't go to God through a priest, certainly not a pastor or any other godly person. We come by ourselves freely to seek the Father's will, to commune with him, to seek forgiveness for our sins, to, to, uh, to, to find out um, the wisdom that he wants us to have. And friends, one of the tragedies of, of a false gospel is hindering God's people from believing with a certainty that they have freedom to come boldly to God. Every day, any day, when you're struggling with sin, or with your walking in righteousness, you and I have freedom. So we can come. You can come. The question is, will you come? If you're not a disciple of Christ, I beg of you, come. Believe. Embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior. Walk through the door of what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. If you are a disciple of Christ, continue to come. Don't think of, of the door of salvation as simply all you need to do. Now I can live how I want. No, we come and we continue to come. Don't let your spiritual life get lazy. Come to Jesus through his word, through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which we're going to have here in just a little bit. There's so many different ways that God has given us to come boldly to him. Don't neglect those things. Nurture those things. Develop those things. And allow them to be the means of your ongoing growth in Christ. So let me just summarize these three statements. So because of what Christ accomplished for us on the cross, we who believe by faith in what Jesus Christ has done as our substitute have been accepted. We've become part of the body of Christ and stand with full rights in the family of God. Now we have complete access to God through Christ. We have been reconciled. And it is for his glory that all of this has taken place. My friends, let that all settle on your heart. And let us take a few moments to prepare for the Lord's table. And I know we have a number of people who are visiting with us this morning. We here practice um, open communion, which means 
that we ask you to ask yourself the question, am I truly a child of God? Have I embraced him as my Lord and Savior? And if you with full confidence and certainty know that you are one of his followers, that you're a child of his, we ask you to come. We invite you to come. Now you may be struggling with some sin in your life and we would want you to ponder that struggle before you come. But the humility in your heart at that point and moment is the means by which God is working on you so that when you come and take the elements, you can do so in a right way and for his glory to benefit you. So let's pause. And I would encourage you, reflect on what we've looked at today. Think of Christ and his sacrifice for you. And prepare your heart to be reminded through the elements of what he has accomplished and done for your benefit. Lord, we thank you and we praise you because you are our great God and Savior. We are in awe of the fact that you came in to darkness, bringing light. And that you left this world bringing darkness so that light could come. And Lord, thank you for breathing life into so many people that are gathered here today through your gospel. And Lord, in breathing that life, you've given us a, a, a purpose. You've given us focus. You've given us new aspects of, of living life that we never even knew before. We have the Holy Spirit living in us, shaping us, guiding us. Lord, we are so truly blessed. But Lord, we want to praise you because of what you have accomplished on our behalf. And we want to ask, Lord, that you would press into our hearts, Lord, this text of Scripture and see the implications of it, the beauty of it and the implications of it. We would see that we are included, that we would see how you are revealed. And Lord, that we would see just the, the wonder of this gospel that, that you have established as the means of reconciliation. We don't deserve your love. We don't deserve your ongoing care, but Lord, you are a great God you never fail us. Thank you, Lord, for who you are and what you have done.